morning. It is Thursday, March 30th. Welcome to another edition of the 801. On board this morning, we'll have news, sports, weather, and time checks. I'm Kent Garrett. You're listening to WIOX Community Radio 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20 in the Catskills. And we're streaming to the world on WIOXradio.org. Plus, you can hear us at 107.5 FM on the SUNY Delhi campus. Coming up, a pause in the New York grand jury uh, investigation of Donald Trump. Rural hospitals are in crisis. Find out why. We'll have another episode of Truth and Lies. Plus, we'll take a look at headlines around the state. And Caitlin Johnstone has an essay titled, It's Immoral to Serve in an Immoral Military. Those stories and more coming up. Taking a look at weather for the central Catskills region of New York, according to the National Weather Service. Today, a slight chance of snow showers before 8 a.m. and then partly sunny with a high near 32 degrees. Winds will be coming out of the northwest at 13 to 16 miles per hour, and chance of precipitation today is 20%. Tonight, increasing clouds with a low around 20 degrees. Tomorrow, a slight chance of snow showers before 11 a.m., then a slight chance of rain and snow showers between 11 a.m. and noon, and then we'll have some rain showers afternoon. But the high tomorrow will be near 49. Winds will be out of the south at 7 to 11 miles per hour. There will be some gusts, and they could get as high as 24 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation tomorrow is at 80%. And tomorrow night, showers are low around 42 degrees. The temperature right now outside of our studios here in Roxbury, New York, and we are in the Catskills. We are uh, about 150 miles north of New York City, 70 miles southwest of Albany, and right now it's 19 degrees and partly cloudy, and the high will be 34. Sunrise was at 642, and the sun will go down at 721 tonight. Humidity in Roxbury right now is 74%. Looking at uh, headlines, a, the Manhattan grand jury investigating uh, Trump's alleged uh, role in uh, paying hush money to uh, porn actress Stormy Daniels reportedly will not meet for most of April. Uh, Trump claimed that he'd, uh, he'd be arrested last week, but the grand jury has not finished its work. We'll have more on that story a bit later in the uh, broadcast. Joe Mahoney reports in the Daily Star that U.S. Uh, Treasury officials announced yesterday that they have approved New York's application for $100 million in funding from the American Rescue Plan and uh, allowing the state to connect nearly uh, 100,000 low-income housing units to high-speed Internet services offered at reduced rates. The funding comes at a time when state lawmakers are debating a proposal calling for a sales tax on uh, streaming services, including Netflix, Hula, Hula, Hulu, uh, Amazon Prime, Showtime, and many others. Two Army Black Hawk helicopters crashed last night in uh, southwestern Kentucky during a routine training mission, causing, quote, several casualties 
according to military officials, uh, there are more fatalities expected. We don't really know the number at this time in the morning. Representative uh, Jamal Bowman, a Democrat from New York, erupted at GOP lawmakers uh, who oppose gun safety measures. Uh, it happened uh, after the Monday school shooting in Nashville. Uh, Bowman called them, said, quote, they are all cowards, and yelled this outside the House chamber as lawmakers were exiting. Uh, in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis' plan to take control of uh, Walt Disney's world's, uh, Walt Disney World's self-governing district near Orlando appears to have been thwarted by a little mousetrap. Uh, five board members ha handpicked by DeSantis uh, to oversee the special governing and taxing district admitted their, that their Disney-controlled predecessors pulled a fast one on them by passing uh, restrictive covenants that stripped the new board, uh, the DeSantis board, of many of its powers. And in sports, uh, the Knicks beat Miami 101-92, to and Brooklyn beat Houston 123-114. to Time now is nine minutes after eight. Taking a look at headlines around the state, the Daily Star is reporting that Two Hartwick College students raised concerns about the city of Oneonta's redistricting plan during the public hearing on Tuesday. Uh, redistricting Commissioner uh, Chair Gary Herzig gave the audience an overview of the challenge challenges the commission faced before he uh, opened the meeting to a public to public comment. The Ithaca Journal is reporting that negotiators are toiling behind closed doors in Albany debating state funding policies uh, like bail reform and forcing growth-resistant towns to allow more housing development. Uh, the only clear result of all the talk so far is that it uh, looks like the New York budget will not be on time, which uh, is uh, it's due on Saturday, April 1st but it, will, it looks like the legislators will not make that day. The New York Daily News is reporting that a Trump supporter accused of pulling a knife on a mother with two small children outside of Manhattan criminal court this week has been charged with menacing weapon possession and three counts of harassment. Her name is Aurora Rucker. She's 39 years old. She was placed on supervised release during an, arrangement, an arraignment uh, late yesterday in Manhattan criminal court. And the Press and Sun Bulletin reports on a uh, campaign for New York to seek federally funded health coverage for undocumented immigrant adults. Uh, that push is now uh, coming to a head as Governor Kathy Holcomb and, and legislative leaders try to negotiate a deal on the uh, state budget, which, as I said before, is due by Saturday. Uh, and they want a coverage for all as one of the, as one of the sticking points and roughly about 255,000 New Yorkers aged 18 to 64 stand to benefit if lawmakers prevail uh, in that conflict. Uh, and that's according to an estimate by an advocacy group which is uh, fighting for the coverage. The Buffalo News uh, is reporting that an historically underserved community on Buffalo's east side will receive $2.5 million in 
new state funding to provide additional services for those who were affected by that May 14th racist mass shooting at the Tops Markets on Jefferson Avenue. Governor uh, Kathy Holcomb said that the announcement made the announcement yesterday and said the funds were provided by the New York State Office of Victim Services. And in on the, in Newsday out on Long Island, they're reporting that uh, Long Island public school districts persuaded more than a hundred tenured educators accused of misconduct, and some of that misconduct included sexual and physical uh, abuse. Uh, in the past decade to resign, by con but by continuing to pay their salaries and concealing the, re the reasons for their exits. This is according to a uh, Newsday investigation. School districts withheld their names from the public and approved, quote, confidential settlements that provided limited uh, or no details. Uh, two, de two deals uh, bolstered pension benefits by keeping the teachers on the payroll for years while banning them from contacting students and barring them from school grounds. And the uh, Daily Freeman is reporting that uh, legalized adult use marijuana sales could soon be uh, coming to a dispensary near you. As soon as Monday, April 3rd, the uh, marijuana, the uh, cannabis Control Board should begin issuing retail marijuana licenses for dispensaries in the seven-county Mid-Hudson region, which includes Ulster, Dutchess counties, uh, and that's according to the Office of uh, Cannabis uh, Management. You are on board the 801, and I'm Kent Garrett. We begin the A Block this morning with the uh, New York Grand, Grand Jury investigation of Donald Trump. Uh, after uh, former President Donald Trump raised everyone's expectation that he would, was about to be uh, indicted uh, he po when he posted a f false statement that he was going to be, quote, arrested on Tuesday. New reporting this morning indicates that the uh, New York grand jury investigating Trump's crimes will be off for much of the month of, February, of uh, April. And uh, here's more from Glenn uh, Kirshner. So friends, there's some recent reporting that is a little deflating, a little disappointing. It looks like there's gonna be a relatively brief pause in the grand jury investigation of Donald Trump's New York state crimes. That is the investigation being conducted by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Here is the new reporting from CNN. Headline, New York grand jury investigating Trump will break for most of April, source says. And that article begins, the Manhattan grand jury hearing the hush money case involving former President Donald Trump is currently scheduled to break after April 5 and restart later in the month, according to a source familiar with the matter. If the grand jury does not hear the case again for several weeks, it will pause what had been a wave of anticipation that a former president could be indicted for the first time in American history. Trump himself incorrectly predicted he would be arrested last week amid news reports about security preparations being made in the event of an indictment. So friends, notably, why were expectations raised that Donald Trump might be indicted last week? Because Donald Trump lied and posted something saying, 
I'm going to be arrested on Tuesday in Manhattan. Protest, take our nation back. Well, that was a lie. It didn't come from the district attorney's office. It didn't even come from Donald Trump's own defense team. Because when they were questioned, they said, um, yeah, we've received no such notice. Uh, we don't know anything about it. So in substance, Donald Trump's own defense team signaled our client is lying. So now it feels a little deflating, a little disappointing because our hopes were raised, albeit based on Trump's lie. There were some other data points that suggested that District Attorney Alvin Bragg was getting close to wrapping up the grand jury. I think the most significant data point was there was accurate reporting, not from Donald Trump, that Trump had been invited to appear before the grand jury and tell his side of the story, which is usually what we save until the end of a grand jury investigation. So I think there were some important signs that Alvin Bragg was wrapping up, but turns out perhaps he needs more time. So of course we get a post from Donald Trump, right? Here's what he posted. I have gained such respect for this grand jury and perhaps even the grand jury system as a whole. The evidence is so overwhelming in my favor and so ridiculously bad for the highly partisan and hateful district attorney that the grand jury is saying, hold on, we are not a rubber stamp, which most grand juries are branded as being. We are not going to vote against a preponderance of evidence or against large numbers of legal scholars all saying there is no case here. Drop this sick witch hunt now. You know, friends, it's interesting how in just the space of a few sentences, Donald Trump seems to go from confident to really desperate. Okay, but let's go back to the original question. What might account for the April pause in the New York District Attorney's grand jury investigation. Well, first of all, let's remember our expectations were raised because Donald Trump lied about being arrested on Tuesday in Manhattan. Of course, he used that as a fundraising vehicle. Shocking, I know. But it could very well be that there's some more investigating that Alvin Bragg needs to do before he's prepared to ask the grand jury to vote on charges for Donald Trump. Because just because the grand jury is pausing for the month of April or par part of the month of April doesn't mean detectives and investigators and agents aren't still interviewing witnesses with a view toward perhaps presenting them to the grand jury. So it could be as simple as the routine law enforcement circumstance of needing to do some more investigating, but it could be something else, friends. When I was a prosecutor in D.C. for decades, it was pretty common that the person I was investigating or the conspiracy I was investigating or the criminal organization or enterprise I was investigating committed crimes not only in Washington, D.C., but in other jurisdictions, frequently across the river in Virginia, across the state line in Maryland, so what would I do? I would coordinate with my law enforcement partners in Virginia, in Maryland, and anywhere else 
that the target of my grand jury investigation might have been committing crime. And as best we could, we would try to come up with some sort of an overarching plan that made sense for all of our cases, for all of the involved jurisdictions. That's when sort of prosecutors are at their best, when they put their egos aside and they do what's best for the case or the cases and the victims and the involved communities. It could very well be, friends, that Alvin Bragg is coordinating with Fawny Willis and that they're both coordinating with Jack Smith and perhaps other prosecutors from the Department of Justice and they're trying to come up with some kind of an overarching plan that makes the most sense. Could Alvin Bragg be taking a pause because Fawny Willis is on the eve of indicting Donald Trump? Could they both be taking a pause because they've coordinated with federal prosecutors, with Jack Smith and his team, and maybe a federal indictment is in the offing? We don't know. And I'm not suggesting any of this militates in favor of Donald Trump being indicted tomorrow or next week. But I think it's actually some informed speculation that maybe this pause, this April pause in New York has to do with either further investigating that Alvin Bragg believes is necessary or coordination among the various jurisdictions that are investigating Donald Trump for his crimes. But we don't know what we don't know. What we do know is that justice matters. That was uh, Glenn Kirshner, and you are on board the 801, and I'm Kent Garrett. block and it's time for this morning uh, truth and lies segment we have two pieces uh, we begin with CNN's uh, Daniel Dale who fact checks some uh, recent uh, multiple claims by former President Donald uh, Trump uh, about Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis uh, take a listen Former President Trump is continuing his attacks, <clears throat> excuse me, on his potential 2024 Republican rival, and that is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. CNN's Daniel Dale fact-checks some of Trump's claims about DeSantis. So, Daniel, let's start with his claim that Florida is the third worst in crime in the country. Is that, in fact, true? Well, there's a handy trick for trying to make the country's most populous cities and states look like they're really bad on crime, and that is simply using their absolute totals without factoring in their population. So it is true that Florida has, as former President Trump said, uh, the third most reported murders, rapes, and aggravated assault. What he didn't mention is that that is largely because Florida has the third largest uh, most populous state. And so if you look at per capita figures, which is by far the, the fairer way to actually compare between states, Florida fares notably better. It's 25th worst on murder, so right in the middle, 33rd worst on reported rape, so better than the middle, and 23rd worst on aggravated assault, again, right around the middle. So very important context that the former president is not mentioning here. Daniel, something fascinating about the former president is his ability to meld recollections of things. Like stories change as he tells them more and more. And there's one that he keeps yeah. telling about, yeah, about uh, how he only endorsed DeSantis for governor 
because he saw DeSantis defend him over his first impeachment battle. Um, set the record straight on that one. This is an easy fact check, and the fact check is, is this could not possibly be true because the president's endorsement of then-Congressman DeSantis for Florida governor came in mid-2018. The Trump first impeachment battle began in late 2019. So he could not possibly have seen him on TV defending him on impeachment and then said, what the heck, I'll endorse him for that reason. Now, it is possible that Trump is thinking of DeSantis defending him on the Mueller Russia probe in 2017. But Trump is the one who keeps raising Biden gaffes as if, you know, they're a sign of serious mental decline or something like that. So I think it's important to point out when Trump's own stories are, are similarly inaccurate. To be fair, there have been several probes, so one can understand how he may confuse them and, and what year they happened in. Uh, Daniel, Trump also has been attacking DeSantis over his pandemic policies. And in a statement last week, Trump claimed that DeSantis sealed all beaches and other places for, ended, for extended periods of time. Is that one correct? This is an exaggeration. So it is true that Governor DeSantis closed some beaches in Florida. He didn't close all of them. In March 2020, he ordered the closures of public beaches in Broward and Palm Beach counties, two populous counties. But he would not order a statewide closure. In fact, he was sued unsuccessfully for refusing to do a statewide closure. On the other beaches, uh, he simply ordered that people limit their gatherings to no more than 10 people and stay six feet apart. And we know that was in line with what then-President Trump and the Trump administration were urging people to do at the time. So the DeSantis order certainly did not come out of nowhere. All right, Daniel Dale, keeping us honest by always fact-checking everything. Thank you so much. You're on board the 801. I'm Kent Garrett. And meanwhile, a new batch of emails came out yesterday in regard to that Fox Dominion uh, lawsuit and, 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 and situation. And Fox's CEOs say that Trump fact checks are, quote, bad for business. Here's uh, Chris Hayes with all the details. Every time we get a new batch of evidence for the Dominion voting machines lawsuit, things look worse and worse for Fox. Today, NBC News obtained a slide deck presented by Dominion's lawyers during a hearing last week. It paints a damning picture of a network that was absolutely terrified of reporting the truth if it meant telling its viewers something they did not want to hear. The most revelatory piece of evidence is an email from Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott, that's her, uh, that was previously redacted when Fox first disclosed these internal communications. Remember, there's a bunch of redactions. This is one of them. Now, in this email, Scott is reacting to this fact check from a Fox reporter in December 2020, who was, correctly, throwing cold water on Donald Trump's incendiary claims of a rigged election. It was a massive dump of votes, mostly Biden, almost all Biden. And to this day, everyone's trying to figure out where did it come from? We just heard the president say it. He brands it a massive dump of votes. But election officials say it is not what he implies. They say there's no nefarious big batch for Biden, just votes they insist that are being counted properly as the law requires. By the way, that's not even a rebuttal. That's just a he said, he said situation. Like Trump says this, election officials say. After that fact check aired on Fox, CEO Suzanne Scott wrote an email. This is amazing. Okay. Wrote an email to a Fox executive who oversees primetime programming saying, quote, this has to stop now. This is bad business. The audience is furious. Bad for business. You can see it right there in these slides directly from Dominion. I have to say, 
That email from Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox, just distills the entire Fox Dominion saga down to its very essence. You truly could not script a better tagline for this whole debacle than this is bad business. The audience is furious. Now, again, we're just learning that email now because Fox initially redacted that email. Wonder why? In the big batch of documents that were made public a few weeks ago. Guess they didn't want public to realize quite how cynical their entire operation is. Believe me, there is much more where that came from. Here's another one. A few weeks after the 2020 election, Suzanne Scott again writes, quote, I can't keep defending these reporters who don't understand our viewers and how to handle stories. The audience feels like we crapped on and we have damaged their trust and belief in us. We lost 25,000 subs from Fox Nation. We can't fix this, but we cannot. We can fix this, but we cannot smirk at our viewers any longer smirk at our viewers, telling them the truth, telling the election was not rigged. There was obviously real panic at the top levels of Fox of the network because Fox viewers didn't want to hear their favorite anchors and pundits on their favorite network fact-checking their favorite president. Another exchange, this is on January 5th, 2021. Fox's owner Rupert Murdoch floats the possibility of having the network's primetime host explicitly tell viewers that Joe Biden won the election. This is January 5th, okay? Only for Suzanne Scott to appear to pass the message along to another executive with the warning, quote, we need to be careful about using the shows and pissing off the viewers. In December, Scott also sent along a suggestion to book Mike Pillow. That's the MAGA conspiracy theorist. I think that's his name, who's one of the most uh, vocal proponents of the big lie because he would, quote, get ratings. Speaking of the pillow guy, in another exchange, staff on Tucker Carlson's show said he, quote, seems to have gone off the deep end and is, quote, definitely crazy, but they still wanted to book him on the show. And this is amazing. All right, listen to this. Because he was a major advertiser who stuck around, I quote here, I know there's concern about him being a conspiracy theorist now, but he has bailed us out loads of times when no one else would, meaning he's bought ads on their program when no one else would. He's also been moving to Newsmax lately. Might be good business move to signal we wouldn't desert him. At which point another producer chimes in to add, quote, he is crazy and about to get sued by Dominion. Hmm, prescient. WTF is he going to say on our air? So on one hand, you got a conspiracy theorist who you admit is a lawsuit waiting to happen because he's making probably defamatory claims on your air. On the other hand, he's making it rain all over your show when no one else will. So maybe you just give him a platform anyway? After all, you can't have him go spend his money at rival Newsmax instead. Honestly, there's so much damning information there. We can easily spend half the show unpacking it. The biggest takeaway is this. Fox's profit line, and it's a high profit line, was and is so dependent on its audience believing lies that it had to stamp out the truth on its own air in order to keep the money flowing. It is more cynical and craven than just about anything Fox's worst critics could have imagined. That was a piece from Chris Hayes. I'm Kent Garrett. You're on board the 801. Now we go to a story, a long story about rural towns and their hospitals. And in fact, the rural hospitals are pretty much in crisis since 2010. 121 rural hospitals have closed, and the uh, National Rural Health Association says that more than one-third of all rural hospitals in the U.S. are at a, a serious risk of uh, shutting down. And uh, 
uh, as you know, we here in uh, Roxbury or in Delaware County, you know, have uh, rural area, rural hospitals, and are very concerned about that. And uh, uh, on the other hand, some through a series of mergers and acquisitions, some hospitals are making a go of it and actually uh, making a fair amount of money. But here is a piece from uh, CNBC where they talk about why these rural hospitals are going under or are in danger. So take a listen. When we first heard that Mercy had decided to close this hospital permanently, the community was in a state of shock. Anger, disappointment, we thought it would always be here. When bad things happen in our lives, we like to blame people. And there was a lot of finger pointing. In rural towns across the U.S., hospitals are in crisis. Since 2010, 121 rural hospitals have closed. And the National Rural Health Association says more than one-third of all rural hospitals in the U.S. are at serious risk of shutting down. And it's not just rural hospitals that are going out of business. Several hospitals in urban areas, including Phoenix and Chicago, have shut down. One recent high-profile closure was in the heart of Philadelphia. Hahnemann Hospital was a 496-bed hospital, considered by many to be a lifeline for the city's neediest. But in September 2019, it shut its doors as it struggled with monthly losses of three to five million dollars, according to news reports. The closure of the hospital was pretty upsetting, it was pretty heartbreaking for, I think, everybody who worked there. But not all U.S. hospitals are suffering. Since the 1990s, a series of mergers and acquisitions have created mammoth hospital groups. Many of these hospital consortiums are turning huge profits every year by offering high-priced services like cardiac and orthopedic care to well-insured patients. So why is it that some U.S. hospitals are making billions while hundreds of others are going out of business? Hospitals in the U.S. got their start in the mid-18th century. Before, if a person got sick, a doctor would come to your home and treat your illness for a fee. Poor sick people often found shelter in almshouses, charitable organizations that housed the destitute. But things changed in 1736 when two of the oldest hospitals in North America opened. The Charity Hospital opened its doors in the colony of New Orleans, the same year New York's Bellevue Hospital began operations. Early hospitals were really welfare institutions, not particularly clean places. Infection was rampant, and they were really the houses of the last resort. But it wasn't until after the Civil War that hospitals really took off in the U.S. With advances in medicine and more people moving into cities, churches as well as local governments started to build hospitals across the country. In 1873, there were 178 hospitals in the U.S. By 1909, there were more than 4,000. By the 1920s and 30s, hospitals are pretty much having to start charging patients. Most of these systems were in place that formed the modern hospital. We had laboratories, machines that could do blood work. Hospital construction picked up after the Hill-Burton Act passed in 1946. 
The federal law gave out $3.7 billion over the span of 30 years for hospital expansion across the U.S. The passage of government-funded medical insurance program, Medicare, in 1965 injected even more cash to build more hospitals. By 1975, there were about 6,000 hospitals in the U.S. But in the mid-1970s, hospitals started to close. Analysts say that had a lot to do with advancements in technology. Procedures that previously required hospitalization didn't anymore. Mergers were another factor for driving down the total number of hospitals in the U.S. Rising health care costs starting in the 80s pressed hospitals to team up to survive. The first wave actually started in the mid-1990s. Then it took a pause, and then we saw mergers and acquisitions come back with great velocity in the mid-2000s. Between 2008 and 2014, there were more than 750 hospital acquisitions and mergers in the U.S. And that trend has continued to today. By 2018, the most recent year this data was available, there were over 5,000 hospitals in the U.S., an 11 percent drop from 1975. There are thousands of hospitals, big and small, but about 5,000 are considered acute care hospitals, where you go for short-term care and urgent medical treatment. For the purpose of this video, we're just going to focus on this type of hospital. Every hospital has its own model for how it brings in cash. Revenue is also dependent on a whole lot of factors, including the type of insurance a patient has and the medical and surgical services offered by the hospital. Hospitals can also make money from graduate medical training subsidized by Medicare, investments on endowments, and money from donors. But generally speaking, the bulk sum of hospital income comes from commercial payers like private health insurance and government payers like Medicare, which is typically for people age 65 and older, and Medicaid, which is for people with a low income. Hospitals prefer patients with private health insurance because that insurance pays the best. Medicaid pays the least. Here's how it works in practice. The Mayo Clinic is a nonprofit academic health care system with hospitals in Minnesota, Arizona, Florida, Iowa, and Wisconsin. The Mayo Clinic had revenue of $12.6 billion in 2018. Almost 85% of that money came from medical service revenue, which includes all the cash a hospital gets for patient treatment. 4% came from grants and contracts. 3% came from investment returns, and the remainder from a mix of other smaller sources. Let's take a closer look at some of these sources of income. Medical service revenue at the Mayo Clinic was $10.6 billion in 2018. 59% of that cash came from contracted health insurance plans. 24% came from Medicare. 14% came from non-contracted health insurance plans and self-pay. And 3% came from Medicaid. According to analysts, a hospital's location is a big indicator of the type of insurance a patient will have. People living in wealthy areas tend to have private health insurance. By and large, one of the greatest predictors of how much money a hospital makes is how wealthy the community is in which they're located. Hospitals in wealthy communities often raise a lot of money in philanthropy and have well-insured patients. Hospitals that are predominantly taking care of government-insured patients or poor patients tend to struggle. For some hospitals, the self-pay category is a real game-changer for profits. In 2018, the Mayo Clinic treated 1.3 million people from 138 countries. 
a large internationally known clinic like the Mayo Clinic is still going to depend on payer mix, but they're also going to try to attract a lot of international patients, many of whom, if they can travel to the United States, they probably have a lot of money to burn on their health care. Medical and surgical specialties can also really boost a hospital's bottom line. One well-known way in which hospitals can generate a lot of money is to either pivot to or grow high-ticket services like spine surgery, cancer care, cardiac surgery. That's a major source of income for a lot of hospitals, not just the high-end hospitals, a lot of community hospitals have got in on the act. But perhaps the most effective way hospitals can drum up more cash? Raising prices. Analysts say that's one of the reasons driving all mergers and consolidation across U.S. hospitals. As hospitals grow by acquiring other hospitals and jacking up prices, they get more leverage in negotiating insurance contracts so they can command higher prices. The bigger you are, the more power you have in the business world. Hospitals have begun acquiring others, developing regional systems. We're seeing city after city consolidate into a few major systems. Massachusetts General, a nonprofit affiliated with Harvard Medical School, is a member of Partners Healthcare, a health system that is made up of about 15 hospitals and medical centers. Analysts say that Partners Healthcare's high prices are a result of the medical group's market dominance. A Massachusetts state agency report in February 2016 claimed Partners Healthcare was the only healthcare system in the state where all of its hospitals had higher prices than the state median. In 2018, Partners had operating revenue of $13.3 billion that same year, New York and Presbyterian Hospital's operating revenue was $8.4 billion. Partners Healthcare, which includes the Massachusetts General Hospital and the Brigham and Women's Hospital, has massive market domination in the Boston region. It's probably one of the reasons why they also have extremely high prices for patients and insurance companies. CNBC reached out to Partners Healthcare, but they did not provide a comment for this story. You know, after 20 or 30 years of consolidation, we've ended up at a point where broadly 20% of hospitals in the U.S. are in what is essentially monopoly markets. But while some hospitals are seeing big revenue gains, many rural facilities across the U.S. are facing a grim future. According to the National Rural Health Association, Almost 700 rural hospitals are in danger of shutting down. Just take Mercy Hospital Fort Scott, a nonprofit 46-bed facility in southeast Kansas. After 130 years, the hospital didn't have enough money to keep going. For the community, the news was crushing. When we got the announcement that the hospital was closing, myself and my wife, we were devastated. We were like, okay, well, that's the worst thing we've heard. The community took it hard as well. The CEO would get death threats, even though it wasn't her fault. The grounds of the abandoned hospital are now home to a small clinic and emergency department. For over a century, Mercy Hospital Fort Scott served not only the town, a rural community of farming, ranching, and light industry, but the surrounding Bourbon County area as well. Bourbon County has a population of about 15,000. About 10% of people in the county lack health insurance, and one in four children lives in poverty. In its heyday, the hospital was probably the community's biggest employer. They had five or 600 employees. We did a lot of surgeries. We attracted people from 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 miles away. 
A smaller number of reimbursements starting in 2013 from private and government insurance programs meant less money was coming in. And like a lot of struggling hospitals, the patients coming to Mercy Hospital Fort Scott had little or no insurance. The clinic part was doing okay, but when you're losing 90% or almost all of your money because you're not keeping the beds full, that's a real problem, and it's a very expensive problem. Dr. Gugnani started working at Mercy in 2004 and now works in the clinic run by the Community Health Center of Southeast Kansas. I'll see anywhere between 25 to 30 people a day, and it can vary from just simple cough and cold to they got diagnosed with cancer, they want to make sure that their meds are right. I had to go to the ER the other day. What were you allergic to? What did you get into? I have no idea. My arms were red and broke out in hives, and my face was swelled up. Say, oh, now your throat looks pretty good. You know, the bad part is I don't know what caused it. According to Dr. Gugnani, some elderly patients have left Fort Scott to be closer to other hospitals, including roughly 80 oncology patients who had to find care elsewhere. Probably as recently as five years ago, there were maybe as many as 200 babies born here a year. Now those babies are being born elsewhere. But if it's not a hospital, what do rural towns like Fort Scott need? This hospital was built to last 100 years. It's 20 years old now. We certainly didn't need all the beds that we had. Honestly, I think you still need hospitals. You may not need a 40-bed hospital, but I do think you need a smaller version of that. But I do think you need a smaller version of that. For decades, Hahnemann University Hospital in Philadelphia was a lifeline for the city's poor. Being a large safety net hospital next to a poor inner city neighborhood meant it cared for patients regardless of their ability to pay. But with financial problems that started in the 1990s, the hospital had been in failing health for years. In 2018, the money-losing facility was bought by American Academic Health System, a for-profit company led by Joel Friedman, an investment banker from California. Less than two years after the purchase, with reported losses of more than $3 million a month, American Academic Health System closed the hospital. When I heard Hahnemann was closing, I didn't believe it. I think most people in the hospital were probably in some sort of denial. It was extremely abrupt, almost overnight. Residents were left without a, a nearby facility, without a nearby emergency room. About 2,700 employees lost their jobs. And Hahnemann was not alone. Since 1977, Philadelphia has seen nearly 20 hospitals close, many located near low-income neighborhoods. In 2016, the city's poverty rate was more than 25%, with nearly 200,000 people living in deep poverty, according to a study by the Pew Charitable Trusts. Like a lot of hospitals, Hahnemann's payer mix was one of its biggest problems. We have a lot of patients of low socioeconomic class, that don't have the means to get private insurance and will rely on government-funded insurance. Many of the patients are uninsured. The patients who live near Hahnemann do have other options. The real issue is the emergencies. Where do you go in the middle of the night? But what outraged many in the community 
The owners placed the land beneath the hospital in a separate company that was not included in the bankruptcy filing. Everyone from nurses' unions to city officials began speculating that Hahnemann's owners may not have intended to save the hospital but instead plan to sell the land to property developers. The hospital's location near City Hall makes the land extremely valuable for condominiums or a high-end hotel. There were a lot of suspicions that the interest in the purchase wasn't to serve the community. It was more to close the hospital, develop the land from there. The land itself is probably worth around $50 million, but it's prime building territory. Others fear that if the plan succeeds, it could be a blueprint for private equity firms to buy and close other hospitals across the U.S. This is a model that we've seen in the retail sector, where the big legacy department stores can no longer operate, the stores go bankrupt and close, and their real estate becomes tremendously valuable for commercial development. CNBC reached out to American Academic Health System, but they did not provide a comment for this story. With some rural and community hospitals on the decline, where do hospitals go from here? What should we expect from our local hospital? Should we have a local hospital? I think 50 or 60 years ago, every hospital did everything for everyone. I think ultimately that's just not what the future looks like. According to analysts, the healthcare of tomorrow could be a move away from hospitals as new technologies drive the shift to outpatient care. Since 2009, there's been a drop in hospital admissions, according to the American Hospital Association. Ten years ago, a knee surgery would have meant spending more than a week in hospital. Today, it's possible to go home the same day. Hospitals have increasingly been seeking the better paying patients. They want people who can pay on their own. They want people who have good insurance coverage. And they want people who are going to be treated for profitable conditions. The future looks like a smaller number of bigger hospitals scattered across the country. They're providing very, very high-intensity specialized care. That could mean for rural communities and people living in lower-income areas, hospitals will be more difficult to reach and potentially more expensive to access. Having one less level one trauma center in the city is not a good thing. Having less maternity wards is not a good thing. I think what we forget is the public good that healthcare provides, and we keep thinking of it as this business. That was a piece from CNBC News. You're listening to WIOX Community Radio, 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20 in the Catskills, and we are streaming to the world on WIOXradio.org. And... Uh, you can also hear us at 107.5 FM on this SUNY Delhi campus. That's going to be it for this edition of the 801. Thank you for joining us. I will talk to you again tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm.